Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. All right. Welcome to Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. Dr. Angela Puka. How was Ireland? <laughs> oh, Ireland was great. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. So I'm glad to be here. And uh, yeah, I was recently in Ireland for two conferences, actually, the conference of the European Association for the Study of Religion and the conference of the European Society for the Study of Western Historicism. Usually we just shorten them with the acronyms EASR and SWE, but you know, I know that people outside of academia wouldn't know what that means. So uh, I, I, I try to just say that the whole thing so that people understand. But yeah, Ireland was good. I was mainly in Cork and I also got the chance to go to Dublin uh, because there were a few days in between the two conferences. And so I thought I might as well. And I saw some interesting and esoteric stuff in Dublin. So that was great. <laughs> you see the Yates exposition? Did you go to yes. that one? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. And I also posted I also posted the pictures on my Instagram and my social media. Oh, I must have missed those. I'll have to check them out. Um mm. yeah, no, I was really sad that that exhibit wasn't there in the years I lived in Ireland, but I really definitely gotta get back to uh go in and obsess about it to the point that they think I'm gonna planning a robbery, you know. <laughs> yeah yeah it's great it's great you can see his diaries and um yeah it was amazing i i posted everything on my on my social media so if you're interested i think that you will really like the pictures and uh, the videos that i posted awesome that's really cool um yeah i uh i i relied on one of the pictures from yates's diaries recently as i was finishing up my golden dawn phoenix wand um and originally i painted it like three layers of, of paint in gold for the head and then i looked at his diary image i'm like wait it's white but we're so mm -hmm. used to israel regardi and alistair crowley's interpretations of the golden dawn even some of us like i was initiating the golden dawn in 96 even some of us like me still get it muddled in our head just because the new material that has made changes has retroactively been sort of superimposed on the old the old material to the extent that you know famously people do pentagrams in the LBRP in blue when originally they were done in white. You know these changes occur somewhere in the tradition by mistake or intention, and next thing you know they are the tradition. Mm. So <clears throat> getting uh, original material is always fun for us practitioners, which is why people like you, of course, are so valuable, and you're. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's very nice of you. Uh, and you mentioned that you uh, were initiated in the Golden Dawn and probably your listeners and your viewers already know your background, but I'm now curious to know something about your background if you uh, feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, um, I was initiated in the Golden Dawn Temple Tehuti, which was here in Vancouver and run by a really reputable adept um, because, you know, sometimes it's more important uh, who the... Uh, leaders of a small group are then who's in charge of the overall superstructure around the world right the the big heads what matters is the little heads and um so we had good people there and that was a good experience for me i was young i was very young i was uh, 15 at the time um but i'd grown up in a the waldorf school and in a maharishi transcendental meditation family so i was pretty much raised in it you know going to psychic classes and stuff when i was an early teenager and so 
by 15, I felt I was ready for the, the real, the real business. I also really needed uh, something solid in my life that would carry me through the chaos of family stuff, you know? So it, it that kind who, of, who doesn't need that? <laughs> yeah, it was, well, it was very life-saving in that regard because after a, a messy divorce and, and remarriage with my dad, like, you know, that sort of stuff can just go on. Yeah, and I'm sorry about that. And all of a sudden you're, you have your, you know, as a kid, that can be a very dangerous thing. Um, to all of a sudden, you know, have no one around it anymore at all and be on your own most of the time and realize, to have to realize that, like, you know, those early teen years that you're on your own in life in general, that's a, that's a powerful trauma that I think requires powerful transformation to survive. And that's one thing that, despite perhaps some attempts to deny, magic still offers to people that sometimes they can't find in any other place. So. Mm. Yeah, I'm really glad yeah, that I found it when I did. And I'm glad I had a, a good group of people because, you know, things vary. Um, in, your, in your doctoral thesis, you studied signatura. Did I say that right? Uh, signatura. Yeah, I won't try and say it right. <laughs> but well, it's, it's fine. I mean, you can try even if it's not perfect. You're, you're, you're at least attempted to pronounce it right. Yeah, because for, um, if you couldn't tell, I'm Italian. So. Uh, yeah, uh, that's it's... Uh, it's a, it's cool. There's not a, there's not a lot of Italians. Uh, Italian has been a language I've tried to learn for some years because, you know, as my friends say, I only like to learn ones that are useless, like, you know, in seminary, biblical Hebrew and Aramaic. Italian is not useless. That, thank you. That's what I told them. Now I have, you know, now you have authorized me to, to slap them for uh, mocking my attempts, but yeah, no, lots of people speak Italian, lots of Italians. Um, it's yeah. Just, I mean, if you want to live in Italy, if you want to uh, learn poetry and literature, <laughs> lots of other things. But yeah, I think that generally learning languages is extremely important because it's not just about gaining the tools to communicate in a different language. It's also a way of expanding your mind and your mental capabilities. Because when you have to construct a thought in a different language, it's not just you're not just translating word by word. You are developing your thinking in a completely different way through different pathways. And that allows your, um, you know, your mind to work um, maybe more, but also in a different way. And so you really expand your, uh, your, your capabilities. And I think that that for a practitioner, I would imagine that that would also be beneficial in terms of magical practice because there are many exercises that have to do with increasing your um, mind, mind skills, mental skills. So just saying, and in terms of learning languages that are not useful, you know, tell me about it. I've studied Latin, ancient Greek, Sanskrit and Tibetan. So then I decided to also, to also learn languages that are actually um, spoken. For instance, English, which is perhaps the, the latest one that I've uh, that I've learned uh, because of my PhD. Because I did my PhD in England, and then I've stayed in England ever since. You enjoy England? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I like it here. I think that I need to go back to Italy every so often. Otherwise, I. I really feel homesick. Uh, so I remember that during the pandemic, I really suffered because of that. So um, 
yeah, there are people here that think that I'm really proud of being Italian. It's like, oh, you're really proud of your culture. And, but I never really thought about it before moving here. So I think that it's the fact that I'm here that makes me more Italian in a way, because, you know, it's like um, when you are in a different place, it's made salient to you, the fact that you are not from that place and so you you start thinking about it more as well because you realize that you move in a different way you gesticulate in a different way you speak in a different way and so you start realizing that you're different um so yeah I, I wouldn't be as you know talkative and expressing so much my italianness had i stayed in italy i'm sure yeah it, that is an interesting phenomenon isn't it yeah um the thing I, I always say that the thing that made me most canadian was uh moving to ireland um because do you live do you live in ireland i did i did for a good while there after uh you know yeah in 2005 and up until the recession i was on in and out because i was playing in a celtic band so i was had a place in the country in galway and I was living on Inishmore for a while because Irish language is one of my great loves and it has been a constant study of mine since I was a child, um, along with like German and French and the usual Rudolf Steiner school languages um, that we uh, have to learn. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with what you're saying on language. It's it, language and instruments and playing music, learning music has been probably the greatest challenges and greatest rewarding things in my life. Um, I know you went to a sort of special school as well. Um, so we don't necessarily like it when they call it special school. <laughs> but oh God, yeah, no, it depends what you mean by that. special school. Yeah. It, depends, it depends what you mean by special school. I would be, a, you know, my friends would call it that as a kid. And I'd be like, you mean elite, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or not free for you poor bums, you know. Um, it, it was expensive, but uh, we got a good break because we were poor. So thank you to the Waldorf school for that. What was the, what was your school called and what, and what is the style of school? I know you talked about it with foolish fish a bunch, so I don't need to, we don't need to redo that, but um, it is interesting. And so I I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that I went to a special school by the definition that you just gave, because (laughs) in Italy school is free, you know, school is public. And in fact, there is a I find it fascinating because here in the UK, there's the perception that private school is better and uh, public school is worse. And I think it's the same in the US. I'm not sure about Canada. Uh, Maybe it's kind of the same. Uh, In Italy, it's the opposite. And I know that in other countries in continental Europe, it's also the the same thing. Uh, So because the idea is that when you go to private school and you pay, it's like you pay to pass in you know there's the perception that you need to pay to get your degree whereas the pu- public schools are either free or you have very low fees and so it's really difficult to pass so if you have a degree at a public school it means that you really worked hard because nobody cares if you pass or not you're not paying for you know for your degree that that's the kind of perception you know that you kind of pay for your degree when you go to a private school. Uh, whereas uh, when you go to the public school, which is the, the most common really, like up until you're 18, school is free in Italy. And then the university, the public universities have a fee that depends on your income. And uh, there are private universities as well, but they are quite rare. And as I said, usually the with, with a couple of exceptions, uh, they are considered to be sort of, 
less valuable <laughs> than than the public uh, university or public schools because it means when you go to a public school it means you really must have worked hard to to get your degree otherwise you won't get it and lots of people don't get it yeah whereas whereas in england you know students once they get in it's difficult that they don't get their degrees mm. um, that's very different in italy when you go to a university in italy a lot of people don't get you know don't really don't, don't end up getting a degree let's put it that way yeah yeah that's an issue i didn't i've never thought about that before but but uh it's a it's a good point i mean do you do you, uh, do you worry about the uh, university world as much as some people seem to online just a little quick a side note i'm just curious um because there's so much being spoken of universities and the waste of education and all of that and you know useless degrees and there's some real concern amongst that but at the same time there's not really anywhere else you can go to learn any of the stuff that we learn at university. Like, where else are you going to become a master of romantic poetry right yes. and like what's wrong with you wanting to do that I mean you might not yeah well, I, as an academic, I obviously love the institution of the university and um, I understand and acknowledge all the issues that are there uh, when it comes both to the university and academia more generally. And the way university work, uh, you, the way universities work really depends on the country. Uh, so I'm more familiar with what's happening in the UK and in Italy, of course. Um, so yeah, I do see increasing issues in the UK university system, but at the same time, I wouldn't be you know the person to say, oh, people shouldn't go to university. Absolutely not. I just think I just think that we need to be critical and be aware of what the issues are, so that we can work and improve the system, but not just you know dispose of the system altogether just because there are certain things that need um, changing perhaps um, and then it also depends on the what is your view and your idea as to how education should look like but yeah I am critical of the uh, higher educational system but at the same time I'm also fond of it so yeah I, I would I would encourage people to go to university absolutely and then if there are issues those need to be reported and highlighted and perhaps hopefully they will be worked on so that the system improves yeah and you're i think you're very much one of the people also pioneering um as an example for others what you can do independently with with education right you don't have to actually um be a a, a lecturer and and working phd in a university system to put your knowledge and learning to use in the world or to turn it into a career or a side hustle or just to share it for the sake of you know, loving it, assuming if you study romantic poetry your whole life, probably really love it. So, you know, what do you do with that after getting a degree in it? Well, there's there's opportunities more and more with with the Internet economy for better or worse. And so I think yeah. it's very, it's very cool. how you're I, Yeah, I personally like the idea to also work at the university in different capacities. Now, I think that I'm moving more towards doing research, you know, more research work uh, as opposed to teaching um, work at universities, uh, just because for the, 
just because I think the teaching can be very time consuming and I feel like I'm fulfilling my desire of teaching through my YouTube and my online presence. Uh, but I also really like um, working with other scholars and other academics. So, and being part of the community, being part of those circles. So I think that, um, this is kind of a debate that I've had with myself. I mean, would you just go um, online and kind of leave the, um, the university and being affiliated with the university? And every time that I ask myself that question, the answer is always no. I mean, it's no, I don't want to just be online. I also want to be affiliated with the university. And I totally respect people that feel differently and they feel like you know once they've they've done their PhD they just want to go their own way and do online teaching that's totally fine for me the reasoning is that I think that to to be an academic you need to work with the university and with other scholars uh, because um you know being an academic means being part of a community and being part of a body of research and uh, being part of a network of um, minds and people that have different methodologies and different ideas and are advancing the um, you know the methods and uh, the the type of knowledge and the amount of knowledge that we have at our disposal. So I feel that if I were to completely abandon academia and working at the university, I would lose the sense and the perception of what academia is doing and what uh, other scholars are up to and I would perhaps lose also the um, I wouldn't be as updated with the latest methodology the latest research um, I think it's a very specific environment you know the academic circles tend to be very the, the things that you learn within academic circles are things that you can not really um, learn outside of them so that's why my idea is more to bridge the gap between the ivory tower academia and the, um, the the public lay people or the community of practitioners and but in order to be a bridge you need to be both ways in both in both places otherwise it's not a bridge is it so that's that's sort of my internal dialogue that I'm sharing with you. But I'm not saying that it is, you know, the absolute uh, truth or anything of the sort. But this is my rationale. Yeah, no, I love it. And you're you're bringing bringing up the bridge metaphor, and uh, of course, as I as we talked a bit before I started on uh, my experience with the first association for the studies of esotericism conference in in East Lansing in. 04 with Nicholas and them it was actually you know I I it took me an cost it was it was very hard to get there I had to borrow money fly to Toronto take a bus overnight bus into into through Detroit stay at a cafe all night till the university opened <laughs> walk into the university wow exhausted hoping I would what, was it someone. was it in two, 2004 you yeah said. yeah yeah, I still got the the pamphlets and all that. Um, and, uh, you know, people started rolling in and I met up with my friend from Harvard Divinity School, Siobhan Cusack, the Reverend Siobhan Cusack. And, you know, we started to connect with all the people I've been connecting with. And that was exciting. And next thing you know, I got invited to lunch with these people, these people who had been in there and I was like oh you want me to come and they're like yeah well why not are you hungry I'm like for sure am and it was 
Jocelyn Godwin and and uh, I don't know. I always get confused if it was Claire Fang or Alison Kudair. I love them both, but uh, I can't remember because I didn't really know them at the time. But next thing you know, I'm having lunch with these people and just listening. And uh, it was just such an inspiring and exciting experience for me in my life uh, that I had to then immediately, of course, graduate and join a Celtic band rather than pursue it more. <laughs> I don't know. I just needed a different experience for a little while and it sort of took over. You know what I mean? But the uh, the 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 rise of the esoteric uh, movement in these associations has been uh, just very exciting. Do you think it's interesting that um, that the rejected knowledge of esotericism and esoteric studies um, in the university sphere, since it's sort of marginalized, um, you know, there's professorships being floating around out there for every esoteric subject. Um, is it interesting to you that that it's, as it's been rejected there, it's sort of found a strong voice on the internet due to its, you know, being rejected probably in the university system. Uh, it seems to me like there's been an interesting sort of connection there between the esoteric being a kind of uh, pioneering element in the online education world um, due to its marginalization in the mainstream academia, like forcing it to find other outlets to its audience. And uh, I've been thinking about that. I want to see what you thought. Um. Yeah, I think that maybe the internet it tends to be generally helpful for niche communities uh, because, you know, if uh, the interest in a specific subject is rare, you will not, it is uh, unlikely that you will find somebody that has the same interest in your town or in your community or in a place that is geographically near to you. So the internet sort of um, dismantles the barrier, the geographical barrier. So you can find people that have your same interests from all over the world. And so you can create a community that is not geographically based, but it is interest-based. So I think that uh, generally speaking, the internet has allowed for communities and um, yeah, subcultures even to create a community and have their space and have the possibility to share knowledge and um, gather more knowledge more generally. I don't think that is just in esotericism. Uh, what happens perhaps that is more specific to esotericism, and this is something that I talked about with Bernd Christian Otto in an interview on my YouTube channel, Angela Symposium. We were talking about the history and development of magic and the perception of magic. And he was saying that in the past, the past 50 years have been the, um, the first time in history where magic has been perceived as more positive than negative. And that is because, um, because of the media representations and well, because of a number of reasons, because of numerous reasons, I think that Wicca is one of the reasons, for instance, because Wicca was quite helpful in sort of um, portraying an image of witchcraft that was more positive, we could say in quotation marks. I don't really like these ethical dichotomous <laughs> terms, but you know what I mean. You know, the, the, there wasn't the perception that witchcraft was <clears throat> all about killing babies and um, <laughs> cursing people and damaging people that you don't like and uh, killing 
uh, peoples and all, all things of this sort. So the perception was that witchcraft was about connecting to nature and uh, that there was a, a strong ethical uh, stance um, underneath the magical practices. And I think that even though now that is perceived um, by the community of practitioners as, as a an oversimplification and perhaps, you know, not really mirroring what human ethics really is, especially for people that are outside of a certain um, Christian or Abrahamic morality or perception of morality. Um, so now it is, it has been challenged. It has been challenged for quite some time, that kind of weakened, uh, ethical stance but even though it has been challenged by practitioners lately it, it was quite useful I think in sort of breaking the ice and uh, breakthrough in and sort of allow pop culture to be a bit more welcoming towards the the idea that witchcraft could be something that is uh, beneficial and benign and that allows you to reconnect with nature and then there's also the element of witchcraft that has been and this is also due to wicca and how it was received in the u.s for instance that it was associated with the um, gay and uh, feminist liberation movement and so it was also associated with uh, reclaiming the, um, the the power of the feminine and the um, uh, and a perception of the spirituality and of the spiritual world that that went beyond a certain patriarchal male-based uh, understanding. So that was also conducive in that. And then you have pop culture that has started to come up with uh, perceptions, with, with portrayals of uh, magicians, mages, witches, and people practicing magic that were portrayed as... Uh, very positive characters you know you have harry potter and um sabrina the teenage witch uh, maybe the, the the new sabrina is not that <laughs> but well you know it's a bit borderline <laughs> but uh, you have many portrayals of witches and um magic practitioners that are positive and uh, you even have like with harry potter that the non-practitioners are the ones that are evil like in with harry potter and his family <laughs> so it's sort of a you know the, the, the narrative is turned on its head and um yeah i think that uh, slowly and steadily because of of a number of reasons and i personally think that wicca was an important stepping stone but it was not the only the only one it was also a you know a change in the culture more more generally generally and the zeitgeist and the fact that um, I wouldn't say that we have become more secular but we have become more pluralist religiously speaking and um, that even though Christianity is still very hegemonic as a religion it doesn't have that hold on the culture at large as it used to have because there is more um, inclusion of different perspectives. Um, so there are many elements that part, partly are due to the change in the culture more generally, partly because of the development within the, the history of historicism and the history of, for instance, paganism and magic practices. Uh, but it's a, a number of concurrent causes uh, that led to magic to be perceived as not as scary, not as the 
devil work. Um, and um, yeah, I think that it's a, a, an interesting change. And another thing that we, that in a way helped that kind of perception is also social media and the aesthetics that have been associated with um, with witchcraft and witches and the crystals and and you associate you know you see these beautiful things and uh, beautiful uh, women and uh, beautiful books and you have I think that that's also a form of art and that art and that perception of, of beauty that you start to see associated with witchcraft, you know, it conveys that sense of peace and connection and connection to nature and uh, connection to your self and your spirituality. And so you start associating witchcraft to all of those things and not to devil worship as it used to be, uh, because in the, you know, up until, uh, you know, be before... Uh, I don't know, I guess 1960, the 1960s or the 1950s, the portrayals of witchcraft were almost exclusively very negative, you know, portraying something that was uh, extremely dangerous and harmful towards other people. Um, yeah. and, ag and against the um, community values and community morals. So it was perceived as something disruptive as something that was other that was dangerous and harmful and all these perceptions have lessened of course you still have communities that have a perception of witchcraft but it's not the general perception the general perception has become more and more positive more um welcoming towards a magic practice it is still i would say that it is still rejected knowledge because he doesn't quite fit with the dominant cultural framework, uh, which is in line with natural science and a certain secular understanding and perception of the world. But it is uh, perceived as less dangerous and harmful. Yeah, that's such a such an interesting aspect to it, the role of aestheticism in style and fashion and how culture can can shift things and even flip them on their heads. I was at a conference at the Pantheacon conference the last uh, 20 before COVID. I, I, I made a crack as I was walking down the hallway with some other uh, women and uh, just about all the glitz and glamour that was there with people just looking to buy crystals and I wasn't being harsh or anything but they were like hey these people are paying for all this you know it's a 6,000 person conference at a uh, you know and a really great time chance like I got to present to hundreds of people with, uh, of my actual audience who are fascinated as I am by you know WB8s and the Celtic mysteries and all that so all that's paid for by the people the commercialization of it essentially and the the aesthetic that's been brought in to make it more acceptable which isn't bad I mean in grade eight during Macbeth I wanted to be one of the witches my teacher was like no witches are only women and uh, so she cast me as Hikati instead. So don't don't ask me to explain her logic there. But um, things have completely changed. Another thing that's changed, interestingly, as a practitioner, I've noticed in the early 90s when I was really getting into Wicca and me and my two buddies started our little coven in high school so that we could, you know, experience some of this stuff for ourselves. Um I was getting training in the reclaiming tradition by Pat Hogan here in Vancouver. This would have been like 93, 94. And uh, the reclaiming tradition was really good for me at that time. But one thing I noticed was when they found out I was interested in the grimoire stuff and the golden dawn, they were very hesitant because they're like, oh, like, you know, they're, they're calling you to 
they require you to harm animals and wear lion skins and kill cats and use blood you know don't that that's that they thought saw that as a very bad thing um and i well i wasn't planning on killing any cats of course <laughs> um you know i figured that 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 was either code or you just skipped over that part um i'm not i'm still not sure but you know jake stratton kent and other good people like that are helping me figure it out um and now um what i've seen is with the traditional witchcraft coming back and things just changing now it's ceremonial magicians and authors like joseph peter saying joseph peterson saying don't you dare kill an animal for a ritual don't you dare but then but now it's witches who i hear of doing actual sacrifice um i don't know what you've heard of uh such that kind of flip but that's a flip that seems to me to be quite an interesting one just worth noting what kind of witches would do sacrifices i i didn't really want to ask too much um honestly because i'm not an anthropologist like you and also would be very concerned about uh offending or just you know uh, i i've just uh yeah i've just heard that that's made a sort of a comeback in the witch scene whereas it's definitely on the outs in the ceremonial scene so i found that sort of interesting to hear i heard of uh someone on my friend the esoteric nerd podcast i think so it was someone from the coyote church talking about sacrifices and rituals they were doing years ago to uh you know that's sort of the part of the gen peorage group right and that i think loosely connected with that scene in la um that i was you know, I was around a lot in the 90s when I was going through the Golden Dawn initiations at a temple there. So, um, you know, there's, there, yeah, there's some radical stuff going on amongst practitioners, I'm sure. Would, would it be, would it be not animal sacrifices that they have? I'm sure. Worth it? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure, though I don't know the details. But just mm -hmm. the switch of that, I thought you might find sort of, you know, to me, it was interesting that, you know, in the 90s, like the Wiccans were like, definitely don't have animals. Now it's the witches being like, sometimes you have to, you know, we're doing this for real. I, I'm worried that that part of that is reaction to them wanting to separate themselves from the, the so-called flaky New Age Wicca um, that they're in rebellion against at times in traditional witchcraft. Um, I also wonder about how much there really is evidence of traditional witchcraft, but I think you and Ronald Hutton probably have already covered that on your channel. Mm. Yeah, well, when it comes to witches performing sacrifices, I'm not aware of that. <laughs> Nothing of that sort emerged in my research so far. Um, there are animal sacrifices being made in um, in certain traditions, you know, even in Afro-Brazilian traditions and in native in some native traditions you can find something of that sort although in that case it's very contextualized um, and it's more similar to uh, well it really depends of course on the kind of ritual but in some cases you can see that the um, killing of the animal is also associated with feeding yourself with um, with, with that meat so uh, there are cases where it's more like sacralizing the food that you're going to eat. In other cases, it is it can be an offering to a specific entity. So it really changes. And I think it's very difficult to generalize. You need to see the, the practice in, in the specific context, in the specific tradition, and with the people that do it and why they do it. But in terms of thinking about the, you know, the, the magic practitioners in the Western world, um, yeah, I'm not 
aware of that nothing of the sort has emerged unless they practice one of those uh, traditions but mm, yeah if you know if anything emerges in the future i will let you know uh, but as for the um, you were asking about uh, traditional wicca traditional witchcraft yeah versus witchcraft. or witchcraft yeah well what do what do you mean by traditional witchcraft yeah exactly i don't even know if that's a, a can we should open no, right here that's not traditional witchcraft is not um a terminology that means anything it is too generic to mean anything if by traditional witchcraft we mean the traditional magic practice then of course there's no such thing because every yeah. single place in the world has had their own magic practice have evolved over time so you don't have one traditional witchcraft you have several traditional witchcrafts yeah but it also depends on the place and um i think they did wanting to find the one true tradition or the pure tradition or the um, you know these things are problematic and they are very often based in a mythologized understanding of what witchcraft is um, and even an oversimplification because you want you know the one tradition when you don't have the one tradition you have millions of traditions so yeah i remember that was one of the most interesting things to me to learn studying their early days of christianity in grad school it was to realize the plurality is so overwhelming you don't understand like my teacher was saying, you don't realize in the first century, they had a ton of churches worshiping the hermaphroditic Jesus. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, they had this. Like, this was a thing. You have no idea how many different varieties of of, of practices and religions, and spiritualities there are. Um, so it's very hard when you fall into perennial thinking, right? Uh, Dan Attrell did a great epic four hours on that, on that with uh, the sledgehammer on their... Yeah, I also, I've also, yeah, I've also talked about perennialism uh, quite a lot on my channel and even with my patrons. Uh, so yeah, I think it is um, one of the lens that practitioners tend to use and want to use is perennialism. You know that perception that everything uh, comes back to one that there is one truth underlying all the different traditions. Um, then there's the the concept of the Prisca Theologia. Uh, which is, you know, the, the first theology, the first religious practice. But these are all things that are more steeped into the myth than they are in reality and in history. Because in, in, in reality, I mean, in history, you have several, several traditions. And um, if you want to see one underlying truth and that all the gods are the same god, well, it's just confirmation bias that you apply and cherry picking when it comes to the characteristics of the gods that you only pick the thing the similarities and you completely discard the the, the differences and the uh, cultural and contextual elements that are so important so important for academics so academics are definitely not perennialist but um, i'd say that the large majority of practitioners are perennialists and that is fine. It's not a critique. I mean, it's just a different, what academics do is very different from what practitioners do. Practitioners 
are interested in their beliefs, in cultivating their beliefs, finding their own truth and um, making it and turning it into magic practice or spiritual practice. What academics do is very different. It's um, getting accurate knowledge and you don't get accurate knowledge if you discard details <laughs> and if you pretend that the cultural and contextual elements are not there yeah. because, it, because, it, because it sounds... Because it sounds really nice that Aphrodite and Venus are the same exact goddess. So, <laughs> because they are both related to love and beauty. And uh, a scholar would say, would more, you know, for instance, in an instance like Aphrodite and Venus, what a scholar would do, they would look at the history and how the two deities got to be associated. What is the specific time they got associated? What was lost? when that syncretism occurred and what was gained and how it developed further and how that syncretism changed forever both the perception of Aphrodite and the perception of Venus. And, you know, even if even when they try and associate deities that are quite similar and have actually been syncretized, because sometimes I also see entities being lumped together that have never been syncretized in history, but even in the cases where they have been syncretized, like in the in this case, you will still see that there is, you know, there is a certain um, temporal bracket where that occurs, and it occurs in a very specific way. And as I said, it really changes how the um, those entities were perceived compared to before before the Hellenization of the Roman gods for instance the roman gods were seen more as forces of nature uh, it was the hellenization that anthropomorphized that made them resemble human beings um, the the roman gods and goddesses so are they the same entity well if you're a practitioner you will look at the entity and perhaps be in contact with the spirit and then the spirit may tell you yes i'm both venus and aphrodite and jesus and everything else and in that case it is part of your spiritual experience and no one can tell anything about it because it is your experience and it is it, it is valuable because it is the experience that you have but if we if we look at the history of those entities then we need to look at the evidence and the historical developments. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. So I'm not... Um, and this is something that perhaps anthropology has taught me. I always respect, uh, you know, the, the personal experience of practitioners. So if you have uh, a, a, an extremely meaningful spiritual experience where you have, you know, um, a spirit that is in communication with you and they say that they are a number of entities and they are the, the the essence of those entities i don't know i'm just making this up yeah um i i would still see that if that experience is meaningful for the practitioner it is a religious experience and it is their personal 
um, experience with the with the divine, but um, it has little to do with the history of those entities. So um, I would say that that experience is valid for the practitioner and for their religious uh, experience. But if they go into the world and they say, well, actually, these entities are all the same because I was told this in this meditation or this visualization or whatever it was, then uh, they run into inaccuracy when it comes to delivering knowledge that is not accurate. It would be, I say, more accurate to say this is this was my experience. If this experience can help anybody, I'm just offering it. But um, sometimes you may see practitioners that because they ha they have had a certain experience, they claim it to be the truth. And that's a very Abrahamic way of going about having spiritual experiences, if you ask me. I'm yeah, yeah. Um, it's 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 uh, yeah. There's a there's a really interesting parallel going on, or not going on, but in the magical world, uh, sort of liturgically, as it were, to uh, to this perennialism uh, particularity issue which you know the whole perennialism thing that's one of the reasons i was i'm really glad i went to university because if i just stayed like a uh you know a, a a pleb teacher in the golden dawn system uh you know without actually going to grad school and all this um i don't think i ever would have really understood the issues with prisca theologia sophia perennis and just you know this kind of level of critical thinking and hermeneutics in general uh it was uh it, it's just it it really does change your brain in many ways in in university when you're learning to think better <laughs> or differently um and it of course it challenged it actually did challenge a lot of my thoughts and beliefs as a practitioner i mean aside from just realizing that the gospels weren't written by the four dudes um <laughs> it's uh it's it's quite a reshaping and so the interesting parallel is is um in in the in ritual practice these days between say thelema and the golden dawn traditions there's a debate between people who feel that any ritual sort of based on another ritual is the same ritual in essence right because it's all coming from the same source and we're all humans and because any ritual that we do with the right intention will connect with the same source and since all forces are one force it's the same ritual but those of us uh in the golden dawn side of things tend to you know look at it that if you make an adaptation of ritual it's a new ritual if you change something the way from the way it's done it's not that thing anymore Right. Just like, you know, if you so if you if you modify the supreme ritual, of the pentagram, as Crowley did to become the greater ritual, of the pentagram, you can't say. So this is where it becomes a practical day to day issue between practitioners. Right. You can't say that one thing is the other. What the greater what the Crowley's greater ritual, the pentagram is doing can't be what this other golden dawn supreme ritual, the pentagram is doing because they were they're diff two different things. And so it's an interesting uh reality to see that i think play out in a sort of microcosm within ritual practice and, and development within uh practitioners and i think there's a lot to be gained from understanding the value of particularities even in our in our emic world of practicing magic because of the, the respect it gives to the the form and structure history tradition and creation of those things in the first place i mean why do we keep doing ritual at all why do we still have churches 
and faiths and liturgies and why you know like why do we actually need to this is it's a i think it was philip who was talking about the fact that we actually still don't really even know what religion is um i forget what his channel's name we should shout out his channel not that uh, he needs any not that he let's needs talk religion. let's talk religion yeah uh, and philip is his name yeah he's great um all everyone all you guys in this this community are great so thank you again for um yeah all that but yeah I, I think there's a lot to be gained from maintaining these traditions and you see this struggle in the golden dawn world between people following regardi's books and those drawing from the original source material um you know there's tension there of course because some people are using modified rituals that were accidentally modified not intentionally but accidentally and therefore they're not as traditional and some people of course then get to say oh it's not real <laughs> which is always fun one so always a fun accusation right and what you do isn't real <laughs> yeah i think it's um that's a difficult matter because if you depends if you analyze it as an academic or as a practitioner so if you analyze the matter as a practitioner it the way you see these kind of things will massively depend on your belief system and your worldview so if for you the focus is the energetic working and the um, magical working and affecting a certain change uh, the specifics of the rituals and all those kind of ritualistic elements and even uh, aspects of the traditions will matter less. Whereas if for you, the ritualistic elements are an integral part of your religious experience and of the magic practice, and you strongly believe that changing it will have a completely different effect, then for you, those kind of details will really matter. So I think that whether you lean more towards the traditional ceremonial kind of perception or the more eclectic energy-based, um, you know, more um, fluid, I don't know how to describe it, perception, it really depends on the, belief, the belief system. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> say that because that's kind of uh, undermining uh, and I, I don't do that good i'll do but, that for you <laughs> i'm just having fun <laughs> yeah yeah i think that they are they are both valid in their own rights because there are some practitioners that find benefit in focusing on those details and the traditional elements and other practitioners that find value in doing it in a different way and from a practitioner's point of view i would say that all are valid if they are if they create meaning in your life and they enhance your spiritual experience as an academic from an academic perspective what matters is the history uh, well if you are if you do history of religion you will study it historically so if you have to identify the the lineage of the golden dawn you will look at all the, um, the, the developments and evolutions in terms of the texts that have been written and uh, things that have been passed down and if you study um, these phenomenon from an anthropological point of view then you will collect data from the people that belong to the golden dawn and you will start and identify patterns of meaning that are created by the, the beliefs that um, people within that community have, hold, the beliefs that they hold and uh, the things that they talk about and what are the things that they 
the practices that they believe are more valuable. So you collect all this data and you realize what what is the perception that, for instance, Golden Dawn um, practitioners have about the importance of the of traditional elements within their practice. So this would be the anthropological outlook, for instance, whereas the historical outlook may be based more on text and uh, the history of the tradition. Um, and uh, sociological, if it was a sociological study, it would be more interested in the effect that the differences in practices and the development of those practices have affected the community more generally. So the impact on the society, in this case, the a small a community, will be the focus if it was a sociological study. So even when it comes to religious phenomena, it really depends when you study them from an academic point of view, it really depends on the field that you are in, whether you are a historian of religion, or for instance, Ronald Hutton is a historian of religion, whether you are an anthropologist of religion like myself, or if you are a sociologist of religion. Um, so you really also have different perspectives, even as an academic, to look at a, to look at a specific phenomenon. But in terms of practitioners, as I say, from a practitioner's standpoint, I think what matters to people is their experience. And I think that, that I could I can say that even as a scholar, because one of the things that you realize when it comes to magic practicing traditions and magic practitioners is that for them, what counts the most is their experience. And the theory comes after. So usually they tend to, um, the experience and what feels meaningful and feels transformative and feels effective to the practitioner is the foundation. And then the theory comes after. The theory must be in line with their experience and not the other way around. That is something that I have found, uh, for instance, uh, studying magic practitioners. So I would say that perhaps for the ceremonial magicians, the experience of the ritual and, a and done in a specific way and the experience of a traditional way of doing things may be more meaningful, may give them, uh, may provide them with a uh, more um, meaningful, effective experience, spiritual experience. But that doesn't mean that it, it has to be true also, also for the eclectic practitioners that have a different way of perceiving the, um, their spiritual practice. So I would say that from a practitioner's point of view, it's, um, it is a relativist matter because it strongly depends on the experience of the individual and the, the belief system that the specific practitioner holds and also the worldview that the specific practitioner has. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. I don't know if you, I hope, uh, also when I use the word woo-woo, I didn't mean that negatively. I don't know if you know, but Tommy Kelly, the Irish magician, has taken it back. So we've taken back woo-woo. It's a positive thing now. We're running with it like go woo woo you know it's just like let's own our own ambiguity <laughs> it's uh yeah i have a i have one of my patrons uh hank uh who also uses it in a positive way so yeah yeah oh, i i yeah i use it in a positive way um acknowledging the reality still that it represents um you know again like you said both these things have benefits and flaws to them and in our approaches and all of that and 
it is a, it is interesting uh, how it all comes down to experience in so many ways. It, it maybe is one of the things that makes uh, magic fundamentally different from religion, in fact, because if your experience contradicts your religion, well, things might not go so well for you, especially if you tell too many people what you're thinking. Um, whereas in magic, we alter our tradition almost for experience. A goetic magician will change the names of the spirits, even if they're old famous spirits in their book of invocations, if the spirit tells them it's a different name. This is my name. Mm -hmm. this, this is my real name. This is my real, real name. Cross it out, put in the real, real name, you know? So that's a very interesting thing, um, you know, uh, reality. Um, I have a um, I have a video on my YouTube channel on the difference between lived religions and institutionalized religions, and um, as I explained in that video, I think that, that also happens with people that follow a specific religion that there is a discrepancy between um, what they should what people should do and what they actually do. <laughs> but maybe it is a bit you know to to a lesser degree compared to magic <laughs> practitioners. Yeah, well, um, I mean, you know, I was I used to be a Roman Catholic, so I, I sort of get it. Um, <laughs> I uh, I mean that that discrepancy actually that my inability to be congruent with the faith was what prevented me from staying Roman Catholic. It just I couldn't be congruent with myself because I didn't actually believe all this stuff they they believe, um, especially when it comes to social teachings, for example. Um, that was just so, you know, Anglicanism was, was a perfect fit after that. <laughs> um, C.S. Lewis's advice was well in hand, you know, don't, don't try and make a religion change to accommodate you just find one that suits you a bit better and go have a wonderful life. So God bless C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to talk uh, a little bit about, uh, voter Hanegraaff, if you don't mind, because, uh, he's been a major inspiration, like all of these fellows have been for me for many years um and uh i'm very excited to read his new book that i hear you're doing a book study on in your uh, patreon which everyone should go join and yeah i'm sorry i can't be a part of that book study but uh you know i'll read it when i get around to it he had an article in in religion magazine and sorry early morning in religion magazine that really i found quite astounding because he was sort of taking to task the entire field of religious studies um, and essentially reading between the lines, it seemed to me, I actually covered that article on, on the podcast. It was a very exciting episode because it seemed to me what he was saying is it, it was like he was almost saying as close as he could without actually saying it, that maybe religious studies departments should be renamed spirituality studies. Because what he was saying was like, if, you know, he, it seemed he was saying there, there may not be this full as, as full a future in religious studies as there could be if, if we opened up to the spiritual aspect and element in humans' lives, um, which, which religious studies sort of, sort of cuts through that a bit. Um, maybe it is opening up more and more now, but just seeing his article and his, his hope for, maybe reimagining how we look at religion in a way that can actually include the, the spirituality of the person involved, because it's always a problem, even, even in academia. You see this with, uh, I do a lot of John D studies because I teach Enochian magic and do it regularly. And, and with John D studies in a lot of uh, writing, um, the, one of the problems is 
they're rejecting out of hand the possibility that the experiences he's having have any validity. And as soon as you do that, of course, you're not going to understand why we're doing what we're doing, right? If you if your assume, assumption is that there are no spirits and that if that's all make-believe or essentially mental illness, then how could you come to a, a correct conclusion about you know, what the reason for doing all of this is and why this would be done this way and that sort of thing. So, you know, they miss a major component of John D when they, when they ignore that, just like you miss a major component of him when you ignore his Christianity and the apocalypticism that goes hand in hand with uh, his time. He was, I mean, he was doing that stuff at, at the end of a century, at the end of a century, like we've just lived through. And of course, millenarianism comes into play almost every case like that, right? We always say the world's ending every hundred years, without exception, it seems. Especially every thousand years. Especially. But yeah, I as you, um, if you follow my social media, you will know that I have met uh, Wouter, or I should say Professor Hanegraaff, yeah, it was a great interview um, with him. I really loved your interview with him. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was great. He's a he's a great speaker and a great writer. Um, but we also had private conversations, so I know how he thinks about these kind of matters. Yeah, um, well, that's why I was excited to ask you because after that religion <laughs> article, he wrote that article a few years back, and then he his new book is Hermetic Spirituality, and I was like, okay, he's yeah, yeah. Down. So we. We also had uh, private conversations about uh, this matter of religion and spirituality, and I think that he strongly believes that at the moment. Uh, for him, I, you know, in the conversation, in the conversations we've had, which is also mirrored in the interview on my YouTube channel, it was more uh, um, moving from using the term philosophy to using the word spirituality, as opposed to moving from using the term religion. Uh, to the term spirituality so because what he was arguing is that the um, many of the practices that we call philosophy especially when it comes to hermetic philosophy they are actually hermetic spirituality they are not philosophical but um, they have been called philosophical because they have been um, made to appear more rational and less spiritual so that they could be more acceptable they have also been christianized uh, so the corpus hermeticum that we have um, you know the, the the hermetic texts that we have you know the ones that have survived have survived because they were more acceptable to the um, christian um, you know the, the christian writers that uh, allowed for them to survive and uh, some of those texts uh, were lost and the and many translations are either Christianized or, in fact, one of the things that I was talking about with Wouter is that he says that there is no good English translation of the Corpus Hermeticum, uh, and he was because um, this is I was uh, about to do a a Magus lecture because every month I do a lecture for my Magus and um, upper up, upper tiers um, level patrons and I was uh, doing a I was planning to do a lecture on the Corpus Hermeticum and Hermetic texts and Hermetic spirituality with my patrons because they were 
very fascinated by my interview with Professor Hanegraaff. And uh, I contacted him uh, because I was wondering whether there was a good English translation that he would recommend, because one of my patrons also asked for that. Um, but he said that he doesn't think that there is a good English translation. And I was also seeing that there was a conversation going on uh, on that in a <laughs> in a private social media uh, space. But um, so yeah, the one that he he recommends a, a German version and um, a French translation. But um, there's possibly going to be a one a good one in English in the coming years. But yeah, I think that the the issue is that quite often. Um, you 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 know through the past since there has been especially in the past and now it is lessening but there used to be a christian hegemony even when it comes to culture then in order for things to be acceptable enough to survive they needed to either resemble christianity or a christian um yeah the christian religion the christian mysticism in one way or another or they needed to be rationalized and resemble philosophy like you know greek philosophy for instance so um, these are one of the two things that have happened with hermetic texts so that's why he that's one of the reasons why he argues that he, you know it's now time to recognize and acknowledge the fact that it's not hermetic philosophy it's hermetic spirituality and i agree with him and i think that uh, you know it's th the time has come for uh, this kind of acknowledgement because if you read the hermetic texts they are not really that philosophical they are very practice based yeah so they are i think that there are there are philosophical elements so there are i would say philosophical elements for sure but they are philosophical elements that are um geared toward you know the the, the reason why those philosophical elements are there are to be, are uh, because they want to be conducive to your to the spiritual practice of the reader of or the person that is trying to employ the things that are written in those texts so i agree with him that is more spirituality than it is philosophy and also there's the matter that uh, calling it spirituality perhaps allows to broaden uh, religious studies as a scholarly field in universities but I think that this is also happening to in religious studies more generally around the world so the the category of religion has been challenged by many religious studies scholars so even those outside of historicism religious studies scholars have challenged the category of religion they have okay. uh, highlighted they have highlighted the fact that religion is not just you know, the so-called world religions, and it's not just uh, religions that resemble a certain structure, mainly a monotheistic kind of structure, that religion is, you know, um, goes, you know, the, the category of religion should be more inclusive to the other religious forms that do not resemble that specific structure. So, yeah, I think that that's also important to highlight. This is a conversation that has been going on um, in religious studies for quite some time now. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that, of course, because I've not been in the academic world for a while. So, uh, yeah, that's thanks for letting me know that. It's so voters not the first to, sorry, Dr. Hanegraaff is not the first to uh, to uh, 
raise an issue with that. It's it's really interesting to to imagine I, what, what Professor Hanegraaff Professor Hanegraaff is the first to highlight the issue when it comes to hermetic philosophy, and oh. in his case, in his case, he was specifically talking about hermetic philosophy being uh, acknowledged as being hermetic spirituality as opposed to hermetic philosophy. Uh, so as far as I know, he was not really talking about the category of religion, but I just added that that is also going on among yeah. religious scholars because I thought that could also be of interest. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It is. Do you see uh, religious studies being called something else in the future if it if it were to change its name? I mean, the only reason I can think it would really change its name is to maybe encourage people to, you know, fill the classes up um uh, on, a, on a fundamental level i mean like you don't change you, if it's if it ain't broke don't fix it right if a if an entire field is working then there's no reason to change its name but if a field's in trouble maybe a you know a slight name change and folk refocusing could include more people within its you know interest and purview so you know, and there's a lot of people who want to study more religion and spirituality in our world and, and are glad that Christian hegemony has waned and that there's a freedom to really actually explore and talk about almost anything these days without fearing religious persecution, at least here in the West, right? Yeah, although it's still more difficult to get funding to the research in things that are... No, that's, that's another <laughs> issue. <laughs> Let's not talk about funding these Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's another issue. But um, so uh, I've never heard any conversation within academic circles when it comes to rebranding or renaming religious studies as a field, although perhaps including spirituality could possibly help. But the reason why I've never heard this conversation going on is because uh, the study of spirituality is already part of religious studies for religious studies scholars. Yeah, of course. And in fact, uh, as a as a scholar myself, as an academic myself, sometimes I would really hope that more practitioners would use more the term religion. <laughs> I shouldn't say that because I'm kind of waiting for it to happen because the um, um, you know the term religion is more of a, how can I put it? Religion is a social actor and it enters the public discourse more directly. Spirituality isn't. So sometimes I feel like it's a pity that, um, for instance, magic practitioners or esotericists refuse the term religion instead of reclaiming it. Because, um, I think that it would benefit <laughs> practitioners more, let's put it that way, if they, because otherwise you're just leaving the term religion to, you know, those religions, the so-called world religions that now scholars in religious studies really don't like that uh, class, that uh, category anymore, the category of world religions that includes, um, you know, the, the um, yeah, Christianity, uh, Judaism, Islam, Sikhism, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism and um, some others, but it's a bit, it's not inclusive. And, um, you know, the, the rationale for what counts as a world religion and what not, it's still, it tends to be still problematic because it tends to resemble a certain structure. Let's put it that way. So uh, religious studies scholars are already talking about the fact that the term religion should be more inclusive. And so, um, 
practices that practitioners would call spirituality, religious studies scholars would already argue that they are religious. But since the practitioners themselves are not calling them religion, they are in a way giving away that term and that category that is um, a powerful social actor to those other religions. And they are just as, you know, removing themselves from the conversation in a way. So that's my perception sometimes that it would benefit practitioners. So you to... think they're sort of shooting themselves in the leg a bit? I just not maybe a little bit. By not participate, <laughs> it's like if you don't show up, you don't get a vote, right? Yeah, in a way, in a way, yes. Um, and I understand why that happened. I think that there was a you know the, the practitioners especially those who uh, do not follow the abrahamic religions they were they just hate the structure and the hierarchy and the dogmatism of religion and they associate the term religion to those uh, to those traits but is it really is it really the case that religion can only be that or is it also that spirituality and spiritual experiences are also religious experiences and that perhaps religion doesn't have to be dogmatic necessarily that there are religions that are dogmatic and hierarchical and structured in a certain way and other religions that aren't and that there is variety across the different religions so but obviously especially when you study these things as an anthropologist what matters is how people construct the meaning around these terms. And so what I see is that mostly, I think that there is more of a movement towards starting to use the term religion, but it is still at its infancy, I think. So people still tend to associate religion with um, traits that they don't want, that they, they, they don't feel belong to their practice. And so that's why they prefer the term spirituality or witchcraft or other terms specific to the kind of tradition that they follow. Yeah, it's been a, it's, we might have lost some understanding of what religion sh means in this bifurcation of, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual, but not religious, or the bumper mm -hmm. sticker, spiritual people inspire me, religious people frighten me, you know, mm -hmm. you, you see this on the West Coast, especially, because, um, you know, it's all hippie, hippie land, and, uh, and all the, all the, 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 draft dodgers came up to vancouver on the west coast uh you know as protest for the vietnam war and i was mainly taught in high school by by american draft dodgers who became teachers and and this this uh this separation i think between the the dogmatism of the religious upbringing they had had with their parents in a much stricter you know the baby boomer generation versus all of a sudden it was the you know it's the 90s and and uh you know uh everyone like gurus are were very big you know osho and maharishi which is what my family followed um just uh brought made spirituality into this crazy 90s boom that we call the new age right um again another rough, one of my favorite books is is dr hanagraf's uh new age religion and secular culture which honestly i think every magical practitioner should read though maybe it would disenchant them too much i don't know or just give them a headache <laughs> um what's your thoughts on like i think the practitioner world should be mobilized by all of you to generate money for scholarships and chairs in departments of esotericism 
That's what I think should happen. I even gave. Oh, I I would hope that happened because at the moment it's really difficult to. That's what I want to make happen. Actually, I I did a presentation at the University of Canterbury to Dr. Dr. Angela Voss's uh, grad students and PhDs in 2019 when I was doing my little European lecture tour and stuff about you know ways to make this possible because I was heading to the states after to do a bunch of stuff and I'd meet a bunch of people a lot of people who are you know have the resources to to decide to do something like that and they can make it happen right and I was sort of curious what the groundwork and how that could play out act you know to do the logistics of that you know I for me a dream would be to like make get a uh, scholarship happening under you know Nicholas's name or something like that just because you know my whole doctoral experience was so impacted by uh, finances lack of finances and his death uh, eventually that it was really tragic uh, yeah at the same time I feel very lucky to have had the experience that I've had but I do think the uh, the practitioner world which uh, as they're starting, as it's starting to gain more benefits and understand and recognize more of the benefits of academic research, I hope there's this you know bridge that we can build of of, of harmony or, and synchrony. What's the word? I don't know the word, but you know, <laughs> get the money from the practitioners um, to form uh, you know uh, chairs and and uh, and and uh, scholarships. Uh, mm -hmm. For the, I think that would be uh, that's something. Uh, anyway. Anyone involved in that mission has my full support and as much time as I can always give to it. And I hope um, academics increasingly realize that there is uh, a lot of appreciation in the practical practitioner world for for the work that's being done. And and we could we could do some cool things in the future, you know, um, mm. you know, uh, losing the Exeter program or it was at Lampeter in Wales when I joined. But losing the Exeter program was, I think, a big loss. Uh, tremendous loss to the field um, and of course we still have Amsterdam and the program there and of course the Sorbonne though I don't know what uh I don't know what Fevre is up to these days you know Fevre passed? passed away yeah, yeah. he passed right. away last That's year weird. okay it was also yeah God bless that man yeah both um Hanegraaff and Parsi and Bogdan have uh, written also something in the SWE uh, newsletter about that and also on blogs and their social media. But yeah, he passed, uh, but there are a couple of universities in Sweden that also, that are also um, teaching esotericism. Uh, so there's an, a next, next year, the SWE conference will be in Sweden, in fact. Uh, there are quite a few, there are a few Swedish scholars that are um, amazing uh, in the study of Westeracism. Um, and I have interviewed a few on my YouTube channel, like Dr. Henrik Bogdan, um, Dr. Manon Gilbert cool. White. Yeah. And, um, and there's also, oh, what's his name? It escapes me now. Um, and there, there's one on Satanism that was more recent. Yeah. For some reason, I can't remember his name now. He's an um, American guy, isn't he? Uh, no, he's no? Swedish as well. Oh. Some I of you Europeans speak not... English so well, we can't even tell the difference. Hmm. Especially the Swedes. They're, they're, they've got that English down. Sorry. Your English hmm. is outstanding. Uh, uh, you, Perfect. You, you, who? Um, okay. Say his name again. Uh, per Faxnild. Okay. 
you you were complimenting my English. Gone. Oh, you, you <laughs> drop like well, your English is obviously good, even to you know, not to mention getting through a doctoral program in English uh, and all that. It's mm -hmm. impressive, but but you you repeat even even assuming it's good, you drop words all the time. I'm like, damn, damn. I wonder if that's a common word in Italian, and therefore she's using it, or has she just got that big a brain? Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, I think it's because I read uh, so many, well, I, I read a lot, obviously, so I acquire more terms in my vocabulary because of that. And also, yeah, because I talk with a lot of academics and scholars, and uh, so I think that that's why my uh, vocabulary is richer than... <laughs> And also, maybe I think that I lack, I converse more, especially in English, I converse more with other academics and in a scholarly university conference kind of setting than in a more colloquial way, because since I started my PhD, basically academia took over my life. I'm hoping to get my life back and find a bit more balance in the future. But yeah, then I'm trying to say that my social time is uh, usually when I go back to Italy with my Italian friends. And so I don't have much social time uh, in English. And as a consequence, my language tends to be a bit more academic -y <laughs> in a way, because that's, yeah, that, that's oh, yeah. what I do. English yeah. is my work language in a way. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It's a, oh man, languages are great. So much fun, so much fun. Um, I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, always, uh, always trying to improve, improve them a bit. So, um, oh, we talked about Vouter and the, the, yeah, the spirituality thing versus the religion thing. Um, yeah. Well, do you think, uh, would it be okay if we, uh, say goodbye now and did a little snippet for my patrons just a little bonus thing for yeah. them all right yeah, that's fine all right well thank you very much angela of angela's symposium dr puka sorry um <laughs> wonderful and uh it's an honor to have you on magic without fears the hermetic podcast folks thanks for listening you can find me through the links below and more about angela as well if you've stuck to the end bless you with wisdom and all of that yeah, and, and thank you very much for inviting me and um you know if people are interested in following my work uh, they will find the um, the links in the uh, in the notes or in the info box depending on where you're saying this but yeah my project is called angela symposium so uh, you will find me under that name or dr angela puka and you have a book coming out of course through uh through uh yes my favorite publisher my buddy put out his book. My buddy Christopher Larrick put out his book through Brill, and one day, one day, I'll get it. It's been twenty years, but you know, I'm saving up still. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're we're probably overblowing this, you know, um, because occultists, if you haven't noticed, tend to spend maybe even five, six hundred dollars on a new book these days mm. for those pretty editions, right? Um, so maybe you academics need to start being like, my book's coming out from Brill. I know it won't cost as much as if it was, you know, through Scarlet Imprint or Anathema Publishing, but, you know, please support my work and buy a copy because compared to some occult books, Brill is actually not that crazy expensive. Um, yeah, but you, I'm not sure if you know this, but we don't earn much from 
academic books at all. So oh, I know that. I know that. That's why I put my stuff out by myself on, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that um, authors of books that are not published with an academic publisher, they earn much more in terms of royalties. But when it comes to academic publications, either you don't earn absolutely anything or you earn very, very little like peanuts as they would say here in England so it's kind of I, I feel bad that my book is going to be expensive and it's not going to fund my work either but um it's but because it's... that's the that's the publisher in the field and so in order to you know enter the conversation and being part of the of the academic circle you know there are certain publishers that are considered more relevant so yeah, it's more a decision that plays into my career more than my funds. <laughs> well, yeah, publishing, having a having your book put out by Brill is, you know, like going to a good university or any other great accomplishment. It's pretty, it's pretty hardcore. You're pretty, you're mm -hmm. pretty hardcore. You went with the hardcore publisher. It's fucking Brill. So congratulations <laughs> on that. That's awesome. Um yeah. And, you know, of, of course, you can always get these books through universities and people, uh, people, uh, people know that a lot of people realize these days that, you know, university libraries are accessible and you can always get them. So, so that's so yeah. even what, public libraries. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. So what's your, you can what's get, your, you can get an interlibrary loan. What's the title of, of your book? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't chosen it. Yeah. No. Well, yeah, I'm still working on uh, because this is, my PhD dissertation turned into a book and I do have the title of my PhD but I'm not sure if, it, if it's gonna work for the book so I will be having um, a session with my patrons because you know I very often <laughs> talk with my patrons about this kind of stuff and uh, there's one of my patrons who's a librarian so um, uh, yeah, I, I want to un get how to get a title that conveys what the book is about, because the, the title now is very academic, uh, but I'm not sure how interesting and appealing it would be to the general public, and I'm hoping to reach out to the general public as well, so that's why I'm not sure I will be using the title of my PhD. Yeah, yeah, you got it. My, 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 my master's was called hermeneutics and the postmodern epiclesis. Mm -hmm. uh, when I put that out, I changed it to the ethics of understanding God. Um, mm. But with God crossed out, because, you know, Derrida, erasure, all that. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll do a little Patreon bonus segment now for all my wonderful patrons. Thank you for being here and uh, see you all soon. Bye. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. 
That's hermeticsciencenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.